presented by the United States Sentencing Commission, this is Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast for federal sentencing practitioners covering topics of interest. Here is your host, Rachel Pierce. Hello, and welcome to Sentencing Practice Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Pierce, today, and I am joined by my colleague, Alan Dorhoffer. Welcome, Alan. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. So what we're going to be doing today is basically a follow-up podcast on the First Step Act. Um, some of our listeners and maybe those who are more familiar with Helpline and, and you know federal sentencing know that we did a podcast not long after the legislation was originally signed on December 18th of 2018. And at the time, basically, it was just sort of going over the legislation and the changes that were made. And we talked about how at the time there were a lot of questions that were going to come up. We were already getting some on the helpline uh, and, and realizing at that point that a lot of our answers had to be, well, the courts are going to have to decide that. Uh, because that's often what happens when new legislation passes. It's up to the courts to interpret that statutory language. Uh, and so we figured we would, um, it's been just over a year since the First Step Act was originally signed into law. And so we figured we'd revisit um, and have a discussion about some of those things that the courts have decided on. Um, so I'm happy to have you here today uh, to discuss that. I think we're going to focus on one particular section, there were you know many sections of the First Step Act, and then there were some that, that related to sentencing more than others. And so, of course, that's what we're going to focus on today, um, specifically Section 404. Why don't, why don't you just get us started, Alan, by reminding us what that section addressed? Sure. And I think uh, when Section 404 um, went into effect, or the whole act went into effect on December 21st, I think this was the part of the act that probably got the most press at the time because it dealt with individuals who had been sentenced before the date of the Fair Sentencing Act, which was the act that made changes to the crack cocaine, uh, powder cocaine ratio, which had been at 100 to 1 before 2010 and then was changed by the Fair Sentencing Act. And I wish in some ways Congress had come up with different <laughs> titles. You have the Fair Sentencing Act right. and you have the First Step Act. So hopefully I won't confuse the two. But the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010 changed the ratio from 100 to 1 <clears throat> to 28 to 1, meaning that a defendant who um, prior to 2010, August 3rd, 2010, who had been involved in 55 grams of crack cocaine, that individual was faced with a 10-year mandatory minimum. The act itself changed that, the Fair Sentencing Act um, changed that to specifically say that it would have to be 280 grams or more to get the 10-year mm -hmm. mandatory minimum. And for the five-year mandatory minimum, instead of being five grams, it needed to be 28 grams. However, there were a number of people who had obviously been sentenced before 2010 who did not get the benefit of any statutory changes of retroactivity. The Sentencing Commission had made changes in light of the Fair Sentencing Act, and then we made those changes retroactive in 2011. And so a number of people got the benefit guideline-wise, but not statutory-wise. So the First Step Act in Section 404 <clears throat> made it that people who did not receive the benefit of the statutory penalty change is now eligible for a potential reduction under the First Step Act. So, and I think that was the uh, provision that got, in some ways, the most press because the crack right. powder ratio has been one that's been in the news over and over again since about 1986. Right, right. And I, I want to thank you for... Uh correctly quoting the date that the legislation okay. went into effect, because I think I said the 18th, not the 21st. So thank you for that. Um, now, so the appellate courts have addressed several issues relating to this 404 section that you just described. Um, tell us what those are. I think there's like three areas that they've sort of, you can break yep. it down into three areas. I think there's 
th- three main areas that I would say that the appellate courts have addressed. Now, district courts have had to deal with these a number of issues, but there are three main issues that I wanted to t- uh, discuss today that the appellate courts have started to really get involved in in uh, these issues. The first deals with what type of motion the court must use in determining whether the defendant is eligible for a reduction under Section 404 to get the benefit of the statutory change. Second, obviously not only what motion, but who is eligible is another right. question that sure. courts, because as you can imagine, defendants are uh, applying at you know uh, high speed because they want to get the benefit, but there are some people who may not get the benefit. And then third, what procedures should the court follow in deciding whether to reduce the sentence? As I mentioned, district courts have had to decide this around the country. So many of the 94 districts have actually – many judges have written district opinions. But what I want to focus on today is the appellate courts that have decided these issues. Great. OK. So starting with the first uh, issue, I guess, that you mentioned is the, the type of motion. Now, that's referencing the statutory provision that the courts should use to actually get the case into court. Is that correct? C- correct. So um, it's interesting. When the act was passed, the act did not give any procedures to the courts how to handle these these motions. Mm-hmm. Most district courts are pretty familiar with a provision of the law 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2, and right. that deals with the retroactivity right. of the guideline provisions themselves. And when the commission over the last, probably since about 2008, have made a number of amendments retroactive, most of them relating to crack cocaine or drugs in general, we made a retroactivity amendment in 2008 to uh, lower the crack cocaine penalties. We also uh, sentences. We did the same thing in 2011, and then also in 2014, we had the drugs minus two that ret- went into effect retroactively, at least in 2015. So many courts were familiar with 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2. Mm-hmm. And when the act was passed, people were confused when dealing with the type of motion. Should this be an 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2 motion, in which they would follow maybe even the guideline provisions at 1B1.10, which is the guideline that deals with 3582 C2, or should they use uh, something else in the law, 18 U.S.C. 3582 C1B, which mm-hmm. allows the court to modify a term and not really focus on 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2. And right after the uh, the act went into effect in 2018, courts around the country kind of split. I think most district courts that actually started writing opinions on it probably started to use 18 U.S.C. 3582 C1B, but there were some courts who decided to use 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2. Now we're starting to see appellate courts actually addressing these issues. And the first one that really addressed this specifically was the Fourth Circuit, which recently the Fourth Circuit in the end of 2018 had a case called U.S. versus Worsing. And in Worsing, the Fourth Circuit held that motions for retroactivity reductions under this Section 404 must be brought or should be brought under 18 U.S.C. 3582 C1B, which means they're not just relying on some of the guideline provisions. And this will allow the court to modify the imposed term of imprisonment to the extent expressly permitted by statute. If it had been handled under an 18 U.S.C. 3582 C2 motion, then that would apply when the commission lowers penalties. But since Congress was the one that lowered penalties here, the Fourth Circuit was really the first circuit out of the gate that has had to address this. And as I mentioned, I think most district courts were probably handling this under 3582 C1B. But now we have a circuit court that's basically explicitly said, at least within the Fourth Circuit, Mm -hmm. that's the provision uh, of the law. Right, right. So I also understand that the Worsing case uh, – 
address the issue, the second issue that we were going to be looking at, and that is who is eligible. Um, so regarding eligibility and analyzing whether a defendant is eligible for a reduced sentence, I understand Worsing addressed that issue as well. Yeah, uh, Worsing is an important case, obviously, <laughs> in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, and the Fourth Circuit noted that when you are deciding whether a defendant is eligible for a sentence reduction, first the court must determine if the defendant committed a violation under 21 U.S.C. 841B1A, a century, and 841 B1B. Those are the provisions that deal with the mandatory minimum penalties of either 5 to 40 years or 10 to life. If someone's faced with just 0 to 20 years, there's no mandatory minimum. Um, and so, But the 841B1A, Sections 2 and Section 3 of the Act. And if the defendant is eligible for reduction, so they meet that criteria, then the district court may in its their discretion reduce the sentence as if Section 2 and Section 3 of the Fair Sentencing Act were in effect at the time the covered offense was committed. So if they are eligible, then the court then has its um, uses its discretion to decide whether to reduce the sentence. And the Fourth Circuit and also the Eighth Circuit is another circuit in a case called McDonald mm -hmm. that basically <laughs> follows the same sort of procedure, which I think is how most district courts were handling it anyway. But now we have some circuit uh, case law that's going to be directing the courts, at least within the Fourth and the Eighth Circuit. Okay, great. Uh, so continuing on with this uh, issue of who is eligible, um, with respect to the reduction in the drug offenses, one of the issues that's come up is what is the drug amount that is to be looked at when determining uh, a reduction? Is the district court using the amount in the statute of conviction or the drug amount that the courts originally relied on for the sentencing because they're not necessarily the same. Yeah, this might have been in some ways one of the more um, divisive issues among some of the district courts around the country and even the government and defendants seem to be arguing uh, uh, throughout the country on this issue. So let's just take for an example a defendant who pleads guilty to distributing crack cocaine and distributes say maybe um, uh, two grams or basically uh, 57 grams of crack cocaine. We use 57 grams of crack cocaine. But at sentencing, the court, say in 2009, the PSR recommends that the defendant also not only sold crack cocaine but also sold a lot of powder cocaine. And the court bases the guideline calculations not just on crack but also using the powder cocaine amount, which actually is really driving the sentence. So, so that's like a relevant conduct thing. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. They use relevant conduct. Mm -hmm. The PSR comes back and makes an amount that says we're going to base this on 150 kilograms of powder cocaine. Right, right. Well – the indictment itself, the government, though, in the indictment might have put that the defendant was involved in more than 50 grams of crack cocaine for one of those counts, even though the relevant conduct would come in. And the court found uh, you know, within, obviously, uh, the pre-sentence report, and then the court made a finding that the defendant was involved in much more than just the 57 grams of crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. Well, there were some courts, district courts, that had actually um, said that uh, we're not going to go with just the amount that's in the indictment. So if the indictment says more than 50 grams of crack cocaine – that if the PSR actually found an amount such as the 150 kilos of powder cocaine, that we're going to use that 150 kilos or whatever that was found within the pre-sentence report to make the determination whether the defendant qualifies for, for a uh, potential reduction under Section 404 of the Act. And so we had courts looking more towards not just what was in the indictment but specifically what the court might have found at mm -hmm. the original sentencing. Mm -hmm. And so as you can imagine, if the defendant w was faced with 150 kilograms of powder cocaine, that person might not get a reduction. But if the court had used 57 grams, right. that person would be eligible right. because that 57 grams, which had been a 10-year mandatory minimum, has now been reduced to five years. Right. And there's been a couple circuits that have weighed in on this now. Um, the first, and basically using the same amounts, uh, the uh, the Eighth Circuit in McDonald basically looking to a defendant who had pled guilty to distributing two ounces of crack cocaine or approximately 57 grams. But the court bases the 
uh, base offense level at 2D1.1 on that 150 kilograms of powder cocaine, the Eighth Circuit concluded that the district court incorrectly used the amount from the pre-sentence report and should have used the amount from the indictment. Mm -hmm. So in that case, they sent the case back and basically said that the court should use the amount that's in the indictment. The Fifth Circuit had a similar case in a case called Jackson in which the court um, specifically said that the court looks to the statute the defendant was convicted of, not to the conduct of the defendant. This is not a relevant conduct determination in that regard. Okay. Another question uh, regarding eligibility of as far as who is eligible that comes up, I've had this question come up. Uh, several times is what about a defendant who was originally sentenced as a career offender under 4B1.1? Is this type of defendant going to be eligible? And I think this issue also goes back to how courts were using either 3582C2 or 18 U.S.C. 3582C1B. Mm -hmm. The courts that typically were used to 3582C2, which was the guideline uh, reductions that we had made with the retroactivity, there's language both in some ways within the guidelines, then also courts that have developed the uh, cases that typically career offenders were not eligible for relief when the commission made some of the amendments retroactive because their guideline range might have been based on 4B1.1 and not under 2D1.1. And so the courts that I think, the district courts that have been looking at the um, First Step Act cases under Section 404 that have been using 3582C2 were using saying, well, this person's a career offender, and even though his crack cocaine amount was a small amount, his guideline sentence was based on the career offender, that person would not be eligible. And the Sixth Circuit actually looked at a case and said, yes, um, the district court was – well, I shouldn't say yes, but the, the district court had incorrectly um, decided that a career offender is not eligible for a reduction mm -hmm. because of the fact that just because the guidelines themselves were based on the career offender, which sometimes increases a base offense level and the criminal history – jumps to category six, it's based on the statute of conviction, which looks again towards and that they, uh, to use 3582C1B for the most part and say that this defendant can be eligible. Just because someone is potentially eligible, it's important to remember, doesn't necessarily mean the defendant will get the reduction. The court still has that second step, which is should I give a sentence below in this particular or should I reduce the sentence below using into taking into account other factors? Very good point. Very good point and a good reminder. Uh, now, the last situation I want to address regarding eligibility is in, in the case of a defendant who is serving a term of imprisonment for a revocation of supervised release, where the original underlying conviction was for one of those covered offenses that's covered by the First Step Act. What what have the courts said about this type of situation? Yeah, so this is an interesting issue that came up, and it's not something I think Congress focused on, and a lot of people hadn't focused on is what about people who, at the time the First Step Act was passed, had originally had a, had finished serving their original term of imprisonment? Take a defendant who had a 12-year sentence, for example, um, that he was sentenced in 2009, maybe, and is after good time, just recently got released, for example. Mm -hmm. But he's on supervised release for four years. And he gets revoked for – could be a number of different things. Maybe he started distributing drugs again or he failed drug tests. And the court resentences that individual to an additional time. So there's one case in particular I just want to highlight in a case called U.S. versus Venable that Mr. Venable was somebody along those lines who had finished his original term and had been on supervised release based on a revocation uh, when the First Step Act came out. And so the court there decided that they did not think the individual is eligible for relief under the First Step Act. And what the Fourth Circuit said was that if a defendant is serving a term of imprisonment for a revocation whose supervised release was for the original underlying offense that was for a covered 
uh, act under the First Step Act. So somebody who would have received relief if their sentence was on the original sentence, that even if that individual is on a revocation um, or was revoked for that, if it's uh, related to the First Step Act's provision, Section 404, that a defendant can get relief. And what the Fourth Circuit did was it looked at a revocation and decided similar to what the Supreme Court has done in a couple different cases. First, the Supreme Court case in Johnson in 2000. Yes, another Johnson case, but Mm -hmm. Johnson in 2000. And then also our most recent case, Heyman, one of the pluralities or the, the plurality had talked about how a revocation sentence, something that's being revoked, actually goes back to the original sentence. Mm-hmm. And since the original sentence would be one that would uh, receive relief under the first or could potentially receive relief, somebody who is serving a term of supervised release that's based on an offense that would have gotten the benefit under Section 404 is eligible for relief. Okay, great. Uh, so let's finally move on to the third area that we were uh, talking or that you mentioned at the at the beginning of our our discussion today, and that is what are the procedures? What are some of the issues that have come up regarding procedures that the court needs to follow in these cases? And the first one I want to ask you about is what about a hearing? Is the court required to hold a hearing in these cases? What do the courts say about that? Now, once again, another issue that has divided the district courts Um Both the Fifth and the Eighth Circuit have held that a district court does not have to hold a hearing when determining whether to reduce a defendant's section under Section Four, a defendant's sentence under Section Four or Four. That's the Fifth Circuit case in Jackson and and an Eighth Circuit case called Williams. And so, it's not a requirement that the district court hold a hearing. Are there courts holding hearings? Yes. Sure. We know that there are some courts that are holding hearings, but some, are, many of the defendants are having their, their reduction um, uh, requests being handled um, in some ways, if not on the papers, let's mm-hmm. say some people call it, but it may be something where they may not necessarily have to be a, um, a hearing on this. Now, a court within its discretion could have a hearing, but it's not required. The Fifth and the Eighth Circuits have held. Okay. I also understand the Fifth Circuit has addressed the issue of whether the defendant is entitled to a full resentencing. Is that correct? Correct. And this, again, uh, just as all appellate courts that we're talking about today, um, there are district courts that have said full resentencing, some that have said that they're not going to do a limited uh, resentencing, and others have said that we're just going to essentially do it on, if not the papers, they'll make a decision. But the Fifth Circuit in a case called Hegwood uh, concluded that in determining a motion for a reduction of sentence under 404, the district court does not have to hold a hearing, and as a matter of fact, that the district court should analyze the motion as if it's imposing and not modifying a sentence. The court should treat the sentencing as if all other conditions for the original sentencing were again in place with essentially the one exception and that one exception being that the drug calculation has been changed. And so um, the Fifth Circuit is basically saying it's not a plenary resentence and that what the court should do is that you place itself in the time frame of the original sentencing. So go back to essentially what it was like before the fair sentencing went to effect in 2010. So the legal part of it or the legal landscape was only changed by the First Step Act. Okay. Okay. Uh, What about uh, considering post-sentencing conduct? What do the courts say about are they required to consider post-sentencing conduct? Yeah, and they're not required to consider it. And the Fifth Circuit has held that uh, in in Jackson, again, that the court is not required to consider the defendant's post-sentencing conduct. Now, I do think there are a number of district courts that are considering it. They're trying to figure out if the defendant, say, behaved himself while in prison currently. Does he have any, um, uh, you know, has he um, gotten into any kind of trouble while in prison? Has he gotten his GED? Has Mm -hmm. he done things that has made his 
life that uh, will help him when he gets out and reduce the risk uh, reduce the risk of recidivism. Mm -hmm. But a court is not required. Do I think most district courts are considering post sentencing conduct? If you talk to most people, I think they are. Right, because it's not can be important stuff that you're looking at. Right, right. Right. as as one judge uh, said to me, well, how would I not look at what they're doing in prison? Because if they're not behaving themselves while in prison, or if they've done a lot more, they've gotten if not a high school diploma, they've gotten a GED, they've gone through certain programs to hopefully reduce their risk of recidivism, of course I'd consider it. Right. But a district court does not have to. Absolutely. I mean, I would say if I were a judge, I would absolutely consider it, even though they're not required to do so. Yeah. And I, and I think we're going to see, not just in this area, I think you're going to see a lot more district court, um, uh, if not district court, appellate court cases mm-hmm. coming out. We just wanted to highlight these three issues because these are some of the more recent published cases that the courts have really um, uh, addressed in these areas. Well, and I was going to say that. I think it's great that we were able to discuss this today because I remember when the legislation first came out, you know, so many times we were saying, well, courts are going to have to decide, courts are going to have to decide. And now we actually have some appellate courts that have decided we can you know, give that information out. And this is a developing thing right. in the sense that the courts are still looking at these issues and will continue until, you know, there are no more questions about the First Step Act. Right? Yes. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And then obviously there are some other issues that the courts are addressing in some of the other sections, Section 401 mm-hmm. and 403. But I think this is the one where, especially since it's impacted, I think, the most people so far mm-hmm. and obviously deals with people who are currently in pres- incarcerated and are seeking to get relief. I think this is why the appellate courts have been addressing this issue uh, a little bit more frequently than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, any, any of our listeners that have any questions can, can call us on the helpline at any point with any if we haven't you know touched on what they're dealing with today Uh, thanks so much for being with us alan today really appreciate uh your insight letting us know what's been going on in uh, some of these appellate courts and we look forward to seeing you again sometime thank you rachel this was great thank you this wraps up our episode of sentencing practice talk today brought to you by the united states sentencing commission thanks so much for listening and be sure to check back often for new topics Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast on federal sentencing issues. Please be advised that information provided by the Commission staff is offered to assist in understanding and applying the sentencing guidelines. The information does not necessarily represent the official position of the Commission, should not be considered definitive, and is not binding upon the Commission, the Court, or the parties in any case.